Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a rarity here, a genuine bonafide part two with a genuine bonafide legend coming back to the show from the band Operation Ivy. From Common Rider, from Classics of Love, from Big Rig, Jesse Michaels returns to Turned Out of Punk, and this is a good one. Uh, yep, I, there's no other way to say it. I'm, I'm very excited for you to hear this. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutofpunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and normally guest booker extraordinaire, but Jesse and I kind of figured this one out on our own. Uh, but thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do. And he will get the message to me. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know about it. But we do have a merch store that has t-shirts over there at turnedoutapunk.com. And you can check that out. If you're worried about the shipping costs, don't worry. We're trying to figure out something for Canada in in the near future. So, you know, mainly just for, I guess, America and places where... It's cheaper to get stuff shipped from, uh, because from Canada, it's crazy expensive too. So anyway, we're, we're working on it. We're going to get this all figured out, but thank you to everyone that has checked out those shirts already. I'm going to be doing more. Once these ones are gone, they're gone for good. So pick them up while you, uh, can, if you like them. And then if not, don't worry, there'll be new ones soon. Uh, you can also, if you want to support the show, Head over to where you're listening to it and rate it and subscribe to it. And thank you to everyone that does do that on iTunes. I really do appreciate it. You can also uh, head over to patreon.com slash punk. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone that does do that over there. And check out some of the bonus content we put up there. Video versions of the podcast, footnotes episodes, all sorts of other stuff. Hidden episodes, lost episodes, etc., Etc. And speaking of support, this thing would not be possible with the kind support of the fine folks at Vans and the House of Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do, just don't do it on your own pocket, and we'll help you cover the cost of doing this thing. And they have helped me cover the cost of doing this thing. They brought me out to Chicago to celebrate the anniversary of the House of Vans. Ten years. Ten years. I got to DJ a bunch of Chicago punk classics, and uh, yeah, had a great time. So thank you to Vans for the support of this podcast, and I'm so I'm stoked being back in the house of vans in Chicago. I got, I got chills when I walked in that place. Oh my gosh. And it felt, felt, uh, it felt good to be back. Their shows that are, are happening now. So they're going to start winding up, you know, it's getting back, 
getting back to normal. Hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Speaking of soon, Fucked Up, the band I play with, will be going on tour in the new year. So hopefully we'll come see you in the town you're in. We'll be celebrating the 10th anniversary of David Comes to Life, which is our 10-year-old record. Um, that's going to be reissued by Matador. You can find out more information about that over at fuckedup.cc. There's also a uh, reissue or first-time issue on vinyl of Epics in Minutes, our singles compilation that we did way back when, our first singles compilation. So if you thought we sucked after the first LP, we got you covered on vinyl. Actually, Get Better Records has you covered on vinyl because they are going to be putting that out. And so please check that out. And also, uh, You're the Horse. We'll be coming out on Tank Crimes, our buddy Scotty Karate's label. So you can listen to all 90 minutes of that song. 90 minutes song. What? What were we thinking? What were we smoking? Um, everyone in the band probably wasn't smoking, but there were some, certainly some people smoking. All right. On to today's show. Today on the show, as I said off the top, Jesse Michaels is back. The legend. Uh, one of my favorite vocalists ever. We talk about all this on the air, so I'm not going to force you to have to hear it twice. But uh, anyway, Jesse has a brand new EP that, well, surprise EP that dropped last year with his band Classics of Love, who he revived, is the World of Burning Hate EP. If you have not heard this thing, you are missing out. This thing rages. It is a uh, an awesome, awesome hardcore record. One of my favorite that came out last year. And uh, that is available on Bandcamp.com, classicslove.bandcamp.com. Um, you can check that out. Jesse, of course, also plays in Operation Ivy and, and Common Rider and Big Rig, who I think are super underrated. Hopefully that stuff gets reissued soon because, oh, some of that stuff's uh, mind-bendingly amazing. So when Jesse and I started talking and the idea of doing a part two came up, you know, I obviously was like, anytime you want. And so here we are. I'm not really going to ramble on. There's not a lot for me to kind of set up for this one. This one gets a little heavy and we go into some, you know, pretty serious topics and stuff like that. But I think, I know I, hopefully when you're listening to this stuff, hopefully, uh, you, you feel some sort of, you know, you're not alone vibes. If you're going through issues of mental health, uh, hopefully by listening to this podcast, you realize that pretty much all of us in bands, uh, as front people are going through issues of mental health. We talk about this in the episode as well, but I just, you know, want you to know you're not alone and we're all there and we're all struggling. And that's, you know, I talk about this stuff a little bit more at the end of every episode, but it is something to kind of, to bear in mind that there are people out there struggling and yeah, you're not alone. Uh, also there's a note, the pre pavement band that I'm trying to recall the name of, with Stephen Malcolmus was the Straw Dogs, which I said underdogs. I was kind of close, but anyway, you'll hear it when it comes up. It'll make sense when it comes up. Uh, but I think that's it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the return of the great Jesse Michaels to turn out a punk. I had many, many really great records. I mean, I wasn't like, it wasn't like an insane collection, but a lot of really great stuff. And uh, I was so mentally ill that I was always trying to figure out ways that I could change my life, change the way I felt. And one of the ways that I adopted um, was I would jettison things. Mm. So I'd be like, I got to get rid of all my stuff. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, at one point I got rid of all my records. I still regret it. 
Yeah, I've, I've definitely, um, you know, I can re- relate to the mental health aspect and it's a weird how possessions play such a huge part into it. Like it's, it's only in recent years, I realized how serious it was with my band and, and what they kind of thought I was doing with my life. But I, I was like medicating through buying records on fucked up tours. Like I was yeah. really in crisis and I would go and spend way too much money on records, like money that I did not have at all. Yeah. And well, you know, uh, yeah, I can relate to that as well. So, you know, now that we're talking about that, this, I think that would be um, at some point it doesn't have to take up the whole thing, but it might be good to touch on that subject in this conversation, the subject of mental health, because it's such a huge part of my story. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. I think I think that's the one thing that's kind of, you know, I interviewed you for the first time like years ago now. Like it it feels like it was just yesterday to me somehow, but I went back and listened to the episode and I looked at the date and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, that was that was a long time ago." And I think since then I've done a lot more episodes and gotten to kind of like contextualize a lot of things a little bit better. And one thing I've kind of come to realize is that there's something that drives the vast majority of front people in bands like lead singers uh, in bands that it, it seems to be is some sort of mental health issue and it's it's some sort of uh anxiety or depression or something but it's just it really does feel like that's the universal and it's so weird that you know that this is the thing that draws us to this profession but it's also the thing that exasperates mental health issues because you are the focal point for everyone's ire and everyone's joy. And you're just, you're given this mania every day as the lead singer of a band. And it's just, I don't know. It's just something that I've really kind of thought a lot about since we spoke the first time. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think that's interesting. I, I didn't necessarily know that about other people. Um, in my own case, I just had, uh, what I, I don't even know how to describe it. I, I mean, the best way to put it is um, just crushing uh, depression and anxiety and uh, low self-esteem and just this kind of anguish um, since I was really about 10 years old. Mm. And so I don't know. I don't know if it, um, directly caused me to be in a band you know i I always fantasized about being in a band long before i was in a band um but it's just so much a part of everything that i experience um before and after the band and people always well they don't always but sometimes people kind of want to know what happened to me after operation ivy broke up i mean a lot of my friends sort of kept going and took advantage of the popularization of punk and they got, you know, rancid and jawbreak and all those bands. And I kind of disappeared from the scene and it wasn't, although, you know, I did some stuff, I, but a lot of my kind of um, retreat from the public life was due to just really serious um, mental health issues. Mm. Uh, that's basically it. I can't imagine also how much, once again, that's exasperated, by what you're going through. Like that's an, another thing that I think I've been able to kind of contextualize a lot more is like operation Ivy and kind of like the importance of operation Ivy and like traditional rock history tells you that Nirvana begats the success of green day and the offspring. But I think 
from doing this podcast, like, no, that, that wheel was in motion way before Nirvana showed up. Like you guys were already on tour when Nirvana's first forming, like the role that you guys play in American music and, and ultimately alternative music in around the world is that you're that kind of, uh, you're that band, like you, that energy's around operation Ivy first before it's around Nirvana as the band that's kind of taking over from the underground. And I can't imagine what that would have been like as a person that's dealing with mental health issues to have to like deal with every day, because I got a small taste of it and it was overwhelming to me. Well, I mean, to be, you know, to really what happened was we weren't, um, you know, all the, the, the big, the kind of popularity of the band mostly happened after we broke up. I mean, almost entirely, it was sort of like, a trajectory like the misfits or something where, you know, maybe we could pack a room, various places, but we weren't a big band while we were playing. Um, but after we broke up, it kept growing and growing. And the thing is all through my twenties, I basically avoided the spotlight and avoided the whole issue. So I, you know, truthfully, I didn't, <laughs> you probably actually experienced much more of that. You know, I wasn't doing interviews. I wasn't going out and there were very few photos of, of us. So it's, it wasn't like I was being recognized or anything like that. So I didn't experience much of that um, kind of limelight type pressure. Um, but, you know, the effect of having like the mental health, health issues was more that it was very more the fact that I kind of um, did avoid the whole thing and stopped playing music and, you know, retreated into my own, own world. But you do do Big Rig during that period, who I think is super underrated. Like, my God, Persistence is like one of the best songs ever from that, you know, especially from that era. Like, so you do kind of pop your head up in punk again. Was there like, like did you feel pressure to compete with yourself and kind of this legacy that's like very new at this point, but it's already massive? Uh, no, I just sort of, you know, like, like you said, I would do things periodically but um, it was difficult for me to get into a consistent thing with it. What, what is that tape that big rig did? I was like in researching, came across like some, like maybe it's a pre demo tape or an after demo tape. Well, we recorded various things at various times. Uh, we recorded for the seven inch with this one guy. Um, I didn't, the recording wasn't quite right. So we ended up re-recording it. And so mm -hmm. there's these demos um, which I can't stand and I, <laughs> I really don't want them to be released, but you know how everything is. Um, they might end up surfacing somewhere anyway, but anyway, yeah. So we, there was various recordings besides the four songs for the seven inch. Did you kind of feel like that was going to be a, you know, like a, a real band or is that just like a straight up one-off project you do? Cause like, once again, like those songs are awesome. And I think that's where I really, you know, you get, get a much more full appreciation of your voice and like what you're able to do. Obviously the stuff you're doing now, I think you're displaying that too, but just in like a hardcore context, like the way you can switch between this sort of melodic voice and an aggressive voice within the same line of a song. Like, you know, that's what makes, I think Operation Ivy stand out so much more than any other band that ever did, you know, ska punk or whatever type thing is you've got this voice that just like can can do these switches all the time well thank you um i uh you know i always sort of struggle with my voice and managed to kind of get what i could out of it i don't 
I don't, <laughs> I'm not technically a great singer. You know, I've got about a, like a two octave comfortable range in it, but I figured out a way to sort of scream my head off and, you know, make it work. Yeah. Um, and big rig was fun and it was cool, but I just didn't, it just didn't really feel like I didn't want to, um, keep going with it. And I don't even know why it just didn't feel right for some reason, even though I love those guys and I like the songs, but it wasn't quite the right kind of music for me. Did you guys play like many shows? We, we played one show. Oh, wow. What was the one show? I don't think I've ever seen a flyer for that either. Uh, we played a party in Santa Cruz. Oh, so not even like a, like a Gilman type show. Uh, no, it was just a, a house party. Yeah. I couldn't quite with big rig and this is not the fault of anyone in the band, but basically with up Ivy and maybe I was spoiled because, um, we had such good chemistry, but I would get into a state that was almost like, um, like shamanistic. I, I don't mean to sound grandiose, but it was like an ecstatic state where you forget everything and just get fully into the music and kind of go crazy. And even though big rig was great, I really couldn't get into that state with that band. And that's what my problem was. Now it could be that I just had high expectations because I'd had this band with more or less perfect chemistry for what I wanted to do. And I thought it was just always supposed to be that. And I hadn't, you know, experienced the fact that, that, like the band chemistry isn't always that way. Um, but, you know, for whatever reason, I, I, I just wasn't completely feeling that peak experience. And so that's why I didn't want to go on with it. I, I relate to that a thousand percent. I feel, yeah, like I, I definitely, you know, singing on stage, like I have to get into a certain state to do it. Yeah. Like, and like, and this relates to what you were saying about the screaming thing. Like, um, you know, I'm not Freddie Mercury. So, so it, it would be one thing if I was like a really kind of a technically gifted singer and I could just do the vocal performance and the other factors wouldn't be that important, but it's very hard for me to really kind of go off unless I feel that extremely charged experience. Do you know what I'm, I think you do know what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So for some reason with big rig, um, it was just harder for me to get there. Mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, and I also relate to the fact that like, I don't think I can do it with other musicians other than fucked up in the same way, you know, like yeah. I don't feel the, the, uh, that, like you're saying with that chemistry, like it, it, it's weird having, and I've talked to other people on this podcast that have also brought it up too, that like, they don't feel that they can do what they do with other people in the same way. Like it's, it's, you know, there are certain people that are almost like auteurs where they can move from band to band, but there's certain people that are also just like, I don't know, like you get in one band and it's like, that's like sort of the perfect fit for you. Yeah. And I was, I mean, I've always been really a punk singer, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like I'm not a singer singer. I'm a punk singer. It's a different thing. It is. But, and I, but that's the thing, like, you know, no disrespect to Freddie Mercury. Cause I, you know, I have listened to queen. I, I do enjoy queen, but queen didn't move me in the same way that, you know, Operation Ivy and even Big Rig move me, you know, like th that's the thing is like, for me, like I, you know, like people like John Brannon and people like you and people like Dwid from Integrity, like those are my vocal heroes because I don't want a vocal that isn't like you guys. Like, I don't want a vocal that's not aggressive. Like that's the vocal that moves me. I think in the right. same way that people are moved by like Adele's vocals, which I think sound great, but they're just not, you know, connecting with me in the same way. No, I get it. I really appreciate that because I love, I am a, an admirer of your vocals as well. So thank you.
Well, that, you know, I'm glad we kept the video off, Jesse, so you don't see me blushing right now, because that is very high praise, you know, and the other thing that's like, you know, I don't mean to keep harping back to like the uh, (laughs) number of episodes I've done since the first time we spoke, but uh, I texted you about this, but like, it really hit me about your lyrics, you know, and obviously studied them like Shakespeare as a child, but like, you know, as an adult going back and rereading them, it was only after I did the episode with Talib Kweli where he's talking about writing your lyrics on the wall in the dorm room as a kid, you know, like going to university, I mean, as like a, a young man going to university, but, you know, and here's like one of the greatest lyricists, you know, in my opinion of my era of rap music that I grew up loving talking about you being an influence on him. And it's going back and looking at your lyrics. It's like, damn, like you, you had this kind of, I don't know, just your approach to lyrics is just so different than anything kind of, before you know well thank you yeah i just uh you know when i was a kid me and uh me and um dave edwardson and noah from christ on parade and neurosis would hang out and we'd listen to punk and we'd always kind of um admire certain bands for their lyrics and also Basically, in, what I'm trying to say is that uh, in these early relationships I have with people around the Bay Area, like those guys and um, Aaron from Crimshrine, mm-hmm. we would really study lyrics, and it was kind of a big deal. It was a good thing. You know what I mean? We cared about them. Yeah. And uh, I'm not blowing my own horn saying this because I'm not even comparing myself to this stuff we listen to. I'm just saying that it was thought of to be important. And so I really put in the hours because I pictured someone else scrutinizing them in the same way, you know, in their bedroom on acid or whatever. <laughs> so who were some of the bands that you guys were kind of gravitating to? Because like, once again, both those bands are, are no lyrical lightweights as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Dave, Dave once told me that the formula for neurosis lyrics was you just write normal lyrics and then obscure them up a little bit. <laughs> Which sounds funny, but I've actually used that technique. I was like, oh, that's how you do it. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, the bands that we really liked the lyrics from, that I really liked the lyrics from, were like The Clash. Um, you know, those lyrics are so brilliant. And then um, Stiff Little Fingers. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, Rudimentary Peni and Crass. A lot, you know, a lot of kind of political stuff did you guys like did you listen to the feeders at all uh i listened to the feeders but it was a bit too much for me i was never um this whole thing about killing teachers and cops i i always that that was never my thing i mean you know i i get it and i respect that other people are into that but i never really um thought of music as uh like lyrics about settling scores through violence uh never appealed to me it's just not my thing were you at that Gilman show when they played the infamous, uh, you know, uh, Pet Cemetery show? Yeah, <laughs> I always I wasn't at that one. I think I was a basically I caught I was at one and I kind of caught what wind of what was going on. And I just got out of there. That that kind of thing is just I'm just not into it. Like I would yeah. never in a million years go see like Gigi Allen or any of those fucking people. Yeah, it's it's there's definitely some stuff. Uh, that happens at punk shows where it's like, yeah, I think this has crossed the line from being something that's pleasurable to being something that's like, I don't know why I'm doing this to myself. Yeah. I mean, he did stuff with bugs and it's just, oh God, it's just gross. 
Yeah. No, there's definitely so, some stories. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, their music is great. I actually, I actually really like those records. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's got an incredible voice and everything. But the whole uh, sort of extreme confrontation with the audience and um, the shock stuff, I'm just not that into it. Yeah, like it's 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 funny because almost like on the opposite side of the spectrum um, is is Operation Ivy, you know, from like, you know, obviously everyone's in punk and everyone's got like their approach to it. But like it just vibe wise, you know, watching old Op Ivy shows on VHS, it's like, yeah, <laughs> there's no dead animals. There's no, you know, people yeah, getting up on stage good- yelling at you guys in between songs. It was a good time. Everybody was invited. It was it was kind of posi core, which, you know, I'm not really super into positive, happy face stuff. So, you know, Op Ivy had this pretty positive, happy thing. But at that time, um, that was really, I felt needed because, you know, in 1986 or so, it was like hardcore, kind of the energy had gone out of old fashioned hardcore. There was a couple bands left that were still good and everything, but a lot of the energy had gone out of it. So what you had left was kind of this glut of bands that um, were just sort of repeating tropes. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there was all the violence in the scene and stuff like that. So the kind of nerdy, happy thing was, you know, at times an intentional response to that. Like we knew we were doing something different and um, you know, it was, it was, it wasn't self-conscious, but, but it was something that we liked. Um, if, if I had started a band, you know, five years later, I might've tried to do something ultra negative. You always want to, um, you always want to exist in, in contrast to whatever's going on at least a little bit or whatever's boring. Well, it's funny because it's like, it just, there's just so much stuff that kind of gets ushered in by the, the, I don't know, the approach to the, the humor of things, the kind of like, looseness of things like it's you know i i talked to stephen malcolmus one time at like a matador i think it was matador 21 party and he was talking about how he used to go and see you guys at the gilman and then oh really yeah yeah like well he grew up in stockton oh i didn't realize that that guy is so fucking smart well and and well that's where it really hit me that i'm like oh shit like that makes so much sense that he would have been going to see you guys in Crimp Shrine. Like when you think of the way pavement sounds, you know, cause they don't sound like, like the authorities who they were like, you know, the mentor, the authorities he said were their mentor band growing up, which is amazing to think about. Are, were the authorities from Stockton? Yeah. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Yeah. He, he said that the uh, lead singer, of the authorities recorded their first uh, demo tape in his first band before like pre-pavement band, punk band. What was his band before that? Do you remember? Josh, I can't remember. I'll, I'll text you about it later. And I'll fix it in the intro because I, I just, I'm just blanking on it now. And it's a name that of course is super generic and like a ton of other bands have used. And I think someone even more famously, like I want to say underdog, but I don't think it's that. Um, um anyway, do you remember that authority song? Uh, I hate cops. Absolutely. You know the, yeah. It's a classic. Oh yeah. I got in trouble with, uh, with Maxim Rock and Roll, this is a total tangent, I'm sorry, but no, they no. got in trouble with Maxim Rock and Roll because um, they have this line in the song, it goes, I hate cops, they're all fucking piggers. Mm-hmm. And, Matt, you know, MR&R thought they said something else. Yeah. And so it was this big flap, which, of course, is just based on nothing. But anyway. That's yeah. 
Tim Yo was like quite a, oh, anyways, before getting to that, I mean, like just to finish this thought, I'm sorry, this is a tangent that I'm going off on. So apologies for that. But, uh, Malcolmist was like, you know, saying that he would go and see you guys and how, you know, how amazing these Gilman shows were for him. And it's like, I'm sure that's way more informative on pavement, you know, sonically, like the lo-fi thing, the lyrical approach than Nirvana was, you know, Nirvana's like, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, much more rooted in what Led Zeppelin's doing than what, you know, you guys are doing. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Nirvana, the thing about, um, the thing about Cobain is, you know, I, I loved Nirvana. I don't really listen to him anymore. I've kind of heard all that stuff, you know, enough times mm-hmm. that I don't need to hear it anymore, but I, I always really liked them, but he's kind of, you know, he loved noisy stuff and he loved to do stuff that was transgressive. But he was he he was just so had natural rock star talent. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I like think- there's only so raw, even though he he really tried to get crazy and raw. There's only so raw he could go because he was just so such a good pop composer. You know, mm-hmm. I don't mean pop in the sense of the Beatles, but just like super catchy songs that that work. Yeah, I think mainstream rock needed Nirvana. But I think like underground music or whatever punk music needed Operation Ivy, you know, like I think the the shift that you guys brought, like it's from once again, doing the show, every guest that comes on talks about Operation Ivy, you know, like, really? Oh, my God. Yeah, dude. I like I could text you. I text you once in a while, but I don't want to blow up your phone. But like, yeah, like it happens all, all the time, you know, like this week. Oh. Uh, I've got an episode up where someone does it like last week. Someone does it like uh, but Mike Herrera talked about the on switch off switch moment of hearing operation ivy for the first time you know like it lights Who's on mike carrera mike carrera is the lead singer of mxpx oh okay and he yeah, was the it- reason i don't mean to sound like aw shucks like no fake humility or anything it's just that i sometimes i think that we're you know like people don't think we're that cool you know what i mean yeah and i think that like in other words there's a lot of people would think it's a lot cooler to be an agnostic front than <laughs> than op ivy which i understand and i you know, kind of agree with, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, so it's nice to hear that. Well, no, and, and, and don't get me wrong. I love agnostic front and I think there's definitely space for agnostic front and tons of people are influenced them by them, obviously, but it's just, I don't know, like, you know, people talk about the velvet underground. Like there's a lot of talk of the velvet underground these days. Cause that documentary just came out, you know, and they famously the idea that everyone that bought the velvet underground record tried and went out and started a band, you know? Oh yeah. That's uh, I, cool everyone that bought the operation Ivy energy CD went out and started a band. Like it's, it, there's no question or attempted to do a band. Like, well, that's great. It is, it is definitely the, the primary kind of on ramp to underground music for people. Well, there you go. That's fantastic. Good. It's good to know you're useful. Well, and I, you know, it's, it's, and you know, not to like diminish anything else that you've done, because I think that's the thing is you like all these other bands show, you know, the skill as a vocalist in, in the lyrics too. Well, thank you. What was that first tour? Like where you guys, you guys played with Chicago with the zero boys, right? Like the, uh, a big show, I think the big show on that tour. Yeah. So, um, you know, if we were kids, at least me and Dave, Matt and Tim were a little bit older, but, um, Crim Shrine had gone out. And it was like this big rite of passage, you know, the real bands mm-hmm. from the barrier we go on tour, you know, the kind of grown up big boy bands like MDC or 
whoever. And so it was a big deal to go on tour. I was only, I think, 18 years old. And uh, we went out. And by that time, we were pretty good. You know, we could play our songs. Um, and every show was different. You know, it was, as you probably remember, punk was a lot different back then. Um, you know, when there was a punk show in a given town, everybody who was even remotely into punk would, would go to it. Um, it was just a different thing. It was just a different world. Uh, so there was a lot of shows, a small town. Sometimes everybody would be there and only be eight people. Then, you know, we also had some bigger shows, but it would be different every night. One night it would be 10 people. The next night it would be 30. The next night it would be a hundred. You know what I mean? Then we had a couple big shows with, with big headliners, including that zero boys show, which was amazing. Yeah, because you saw them on their first run of shows, right? Or not first run, but when they came out uh, for the uh, Western Front shows, right? Uh, I never saw them at the Eastern Front. The Eastern, Eastern Front, Front or Western Front, whatever it was called, they didn't play the one I went to. Okay. Or I actually went to two of those, and they didn't play either of them. So that was the first time I'd, I'd seen them. And I was kind of like, is it too late? You know, because... Um, because uh, that record, whatever the fuck, Vicious Circle came out, yeah. I don't know, 83 or something. I was like, are they already kind of, you know, a lot of those old punk bands, they would put out a second album and it just it kind of their energy would be diminished. But they were fucking red hot. They were great. Yeah, they're like, you know, super underrated, too, in terms of like songs. Like there's so many just like classic like pop songs on on that record, that LP. Yeah, they're just amazing, amazing musicians. I mean, I just think they were one of the best rock and roll bands in America, like forgetting mm -hmm. about punk. But because they were punk, they didn't really, you know, there, there were limits to what they could do. But they I mean, they're just so fucking good. That guy Mayhern um, was an amazing vocalist and. Uh, producer too of course so that that was a great show he was just on the show uh, not too long ago and uh oh. and it was awesome because i didn't realize that the the john cougar connection that he yeah, actually he's like john, john cougar's guy yeah yeah <laughs> and john cougar was on culture records originally with the gizmos oh holy shit that's amazing I know it's <laughs> yeah i mean they're all from where are they from bloomington or lafayette or something like that bloomington, I, I believe yeah Bloomington. Yeah, they're all from a real small town. They probably all know each other. Yeah, and I guess if it's like one of those things that if you're into cool music and subversive music or whatever, you're 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 going to gravitate to other people that are are into anything remotely approaching it at that time. Yeah, I mean, when we were in Op Ivy, we played in Lafayette at uh, Mass Giorgini's venue. Uh, do you know Mass? I don't know him, but obviously I'm very familiar with like Squirt Gun, and he's a uh, a legendary producer yeah well so back then they ran a club mm -hmm. and it was kind of one of those things like a lot of towns where you know you played the club and everybody would come out um who was even remotely connected to punk or whatever it's awesome too because like on that tour that you guys are doing it's pre the scene that you would kind of kick off starting to go so i imagine you're also just playing with like all sorts of like like, were there any bands that you felt like you fit in sonically that you played with or any bands that just stand out to you on that tour even? Um, well, God, it was just such a funny time because I, as I said, it was this weird time where there was really a lot of hardcore bands yeah. between 1981 and 1985, like yeah. hundreds, thousands. 
And it was a time where a lot of those bands had just sort of um, gone away. And so there was all, there was a lot of weird bands we played with. We played with this band in Austin called Squat Thrust. That was a very weird band that was sort of like the butthole surfers or something. Like the guitar player was on stilts. Somebody was on stilts. It was just very weird. Like they were on acid and the drummer was in a giant bubble of some kind that they did made with plastic or something. It was just very weird. And then we played with, um, who else did we play with? I'm trying to remember. Bazooka Joe we played with, which was a, a hardcore band that was a kind of latter-day hardcore band, but they were really good. Colorado, um, I think, are they from? I think they were from Myrtle Beach. Okay. Uh, but every show, you know, I don't, maybe it's still like this, but back then every show was different. Like, you know, sometimes it would be in someone's living room, the Myrtle beach show, um, the club had no grounding. So we kept getting shocked like all night. We kept getting shocks and Matt and Tim both had shaved heads. And at one point they bumped heads and I literally saw a blue spark, like jump between (laughs) their heads. (laughs) You know, it was just fucked up. And so there was a lot of things like that that were weird. We played this, and I've kind of already told these stories before, but, you know, not here. But um, They're new to we us. Played, yeah, we played this one show in Tucson where um, uh, the tattoo gun got, some, somebody's tattoo gun got ripped off, and we got blamed for it. And, like, people were trying to follow us the next show. So it was just always something. You know, there's a yeah. lot of weird shit. <laughs> Well, like you mentioned that kind of dropping off point in 85 and that's, you know, once again, something that seems to come up time and time again, where, you know, 84, 85 uh, around, I, I guess around maybe North America. I don't know what it was like in Mexico at that time, but certainly in Canada and the U S there was like a real shift that kind of happens where people start going into metal. People start getting into indie rock, you know, like it, it was a, uh, a transition period, you know, certainly when you guys are, are touring. Yeah, definitely. And I remember, like I said, when we started, I was really good friends with Aaron Comet Bus. Mm-hmm. And we were very consciously, like we liked hardcore. I probably liked it a little bit more than he did. But we were very consciously into the mid-tempo, like melodic thing. Yeah. Um, you know, like the Damned, the Clash, Stiff Little Fingers, Adverts, stuff like that. And so that's that's something that both of us wanted to do with music because there weren't that many bands like that very few bands because every was everybody was going dip, 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 you know and so we were trying to um at least i wanted to i didn't have a guitar in my hand so i didn't always have that much control over it but both of us wanted to incorporate that slightly slower sound into the music yeah like i, I read that you referenced the dills too as an influence which i you know i, I love that band and, and certainly a band that you know isn't cited very often but they are amazing yeah great band all that old stuff we like all the danger house stuff and uh just all those old classic punk records it's funny too because like as you say like you used to have this wild collection like it's it's a real record collector kind of scene it seems like everyone's making like deep references in the stuff they're into yeah that that was you know we were into that stuff I was somewhat, I guess everybody was kind of a record collector, it felt like. So, yeah, we were always digging through crates and, and looking for looking for things. What was Timmy O like, Timmy O'Hannon? Um, obviously, like, he's a huge fixture in, in punk and things like that, but he's such a, a divisive person, I think, for some people. Well, he was a real complex guy. Um, 
you know, from the earliest, I think I told you in the last interview, um, from the earliest times when I got into punk, we used to go down to that radio show. So I knew him kind of from the beginning of my interest in this type of music. And he was always a nice guy. You know, he's famous for having this big laugh, a really affable guy who's always smoking. And, uh, you know, I liked him. At the same time, I could feel, I sensed that he had a political agenda kind of under the surface and Mm -hmm. sometimes not so much under the surface. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, in my lyrics, in my viewpoint in life, I am as suspicious of left-wing authoritarianism as I am of right-wing authoritarianism. Um, I I just don't, I don't like uh, political absolutism of any kind. Mm. And like all my lyrics reflect that, you know, more than anything, I'm not, I complain about, you know, corporate hegemony and and stuff like that. But a lot of it is uh, hegemony, hegemony, anywhere, whatever that word is. (laughs) But uh, basically, oppressive political structures of any kind are things I'm suspicious of. And Tim, you know, I don't think he was never too clear, but I I really feel like he was like a Maoist maybe, or something like, like you never knew. And that's the thing that as much as I loved him, I, I couldn't completely sort of affiliate with my, myself with him. You know what I mean? I was always suspicious of these endless kind of bureaucratic meetings at Gilman street and this, this like lust to find um, bands to denounce, you know what I mean? Like the thing I just said about the authorities. So I liked him. I liked what he did for music. I loved his, I mean, he had one of the most sincere love affairs with shitty hardcore I've ever seen. (laughs) You just get these seven inches from some obscure town in Sweden, just unlistenable shit, which I probably like now, but, and he would just be so into it. So, I mean, you know, God blessed him and, and his sincere love for punk, but also like the, the kind of um, subterranean hardline communist stuff. I wasn't that into it's amazing too to think about like you know obviously him and Jeff Bale like these sort of like super hardline political people that are you know even Larry, even Larry Livermore you know is very political too like you know fa- being sort of like the uh I guess forefathers of the scene or like you know leaders of the scene in the beginning or, or I don't know people involved in the scene and yet this is the scene that begets the biggest bands to kind of like the most commercial bands ultimately I guess to kind of come out of punk rock at a certain point yeah, it is. Fu- it is funny and, and ironic and paradoxical. And, uh, you know, just to not get it twisted, I, I was pretty political myself in a sort of classically progressive lefty way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the fuck I am now. I have a lot of my opinions about politics are pretty complex, but, but, you know, in those times I definitely was very left-leaning and, and very, um, you know, relatively political. So, so it's not that I was suspicious of any politics or any political conscience, but I did have a suspicion for um, political tendencies that ran authoritarian. And I sensed some of that uh, with some of the MRNR stuff. It wasn't always on the surface. It was like just under the surface and it made me suspicious. I mean, a simple way to put it is there was too many fucking rules. Yeah. <laughs> And there was too much concern about rules. I, I saw you say that one actually in the uh, something. Uh, give me something better. 
about the Gilman and just the amount of rules there were at that venue? Yeah, it was just, um, and listen, I, you know, I, I'm not saying it shouldn't have happened or making so much like making a comment about Gilman. I'm just saying that's the way I related to it. Yeah. I never felt, I never completely drank the Kool-Aid with Gilman and I sort of liked other venues better. What were some of the other venues at that time that were like that kind of get forgotten because it is such a, you know, like it dominates so much of the narrative. And obviously I like playing there were some of my favorite shows I've ever gotten to do and stuff like that. But like, what were some of your other venues at that time that you felt were? Well, yeah, I looking back on it, I don't know if I like them better. Exactly. That might be going too far. (laughs) Yeah. Well, for example, when, when I used to go to the underground railroad in Morgantown, West Virginia, it kind of had all the, the populist friendliness of Gilman street, but with way less restrictive and, and self-conscious about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, around Berkeley, there was the Berkeley square, but that, you know, these places had their own problems. Um, Barrington, which was just often devolved into like just insane acid and heroin debauchery. So I don't, I don't fucking know, but it's just, my suspicions were there with Gilman. A lot of times it was great. And sometimes like at the meeting, you know, the endless business meetings, I wanted to like kill myself or somebody else, uh, in that order. It, it it feels like um, also, though, for a place with all these rules, a lot of fucked up shit went down. Like, it feels like the, the rules almost, uh, you know, in spite of the rules, it's just like a venue where some of the craziest shows ever happen. And it happened and still happen. Yeah, a lot of crazy shit happened for sure. It was like a, a cart with three wheels where someone was always trying to like get the fourth wheel on while it was moving you know what i said yeah so it didn't always work it wasn't like a super tight ship was operation ivy practicing when the the dead baby was found um no but those were all my friends that did that um you mean the people who dug up the dead baby or whatever? yeah like at a mausoleum once again this is coming from that book yeah so um a bunch of people, I guess. I, I think I was in the house when they recovered it. it. All these memories sort of blend together. There was a bunch of houses in um, Oakland, like punk houses. Uh, and one night, people were always doing stupid shit, you know? Yeah. And one night, some people went to the graveyard. And for some reason, I have no idea why they did this, but they dug up a grave. And it, I guess it was a dead baby. So. That was after Op Ivy broke up, but yeah, that was just incredibly dumb. Yeah, no, definitely uh, a very and gross and, story. and wrong. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I did I did a lot of stupid shit myself, so I say that without a you know like a he- the heavy hand of judgment or anything. Yeah, that's definitely one of the ones where it's like I remember reading it for the first time and being like, oh my gosh, it's it stops you in the, your tracks, you know? Yeah, we used to just walk around, walk through the streets of Berkeley just destroying shit. You know what I mean? Like just like breaking things and, you know, the hedge diving and all that stuff, but breaking mirrors off cars. It was just so fucking stupid. And uh, yeah, I I don't know what to say. I'm not super proud of that. I think I was even, I didn't feel great about it even while I was doing it. Yeah. It feels like it's just something that punk, you know, somehow ends up, inviting because of like the freedom of it i guess at a certain point where it just like in the rejection of a of of the things around you where you just it just you get caught up and and shit gets fucked up it's like it's also people with trauma 
you know, trying to yeah, deal that's, with it. See, that's the other thing. It's, I think that, you know, on the one, on the face of it, there's this sort of joyous, rebellious catharsis and fuck society and all this shit. But, you know, I think underneath it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pain and dysfunction and, and people who, um, you know, people with problems. And I mean, that definitely, that's definitely true of me. I can't speak for all my friends. I, I, I mean, I've always said this and it's really true that I think at, at heart, I really just wanted to be like in a well-adjusted kid, like in an arts magnet school, like in the school play and doing well in an art class. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like at heart, that's really what I wanted. Um, And I sort of got punk instead. Uh, we don't, you don't, you don't always have control over these things. You know what I mean? No. And, but like, I'm not, I'm not saying I regret it, but I'm just saying that kind of like, if I had been less tortured as a person and less, more well-adjusted, I probably would have done something completely different. So I guess, you know, the people who like the music can be thankful that, that I did have those problems. And when I say that, I, you know, I'm talking about my own story, but I'm sure that's true for a lot of people. Oh yeah. I definitely feel once again, I relate to that a thousand percent, you know, like the only reason I, I wrote the lyrics I wrote was because I was dealing with the stuff I was dealing with in my head. And like, as much as I hate it and, and wish I wasn't like this, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without this. I'm sure of it. Yeah. And the other thing is all the social commentary, including now I still write lyrics with social commentary, all of it was a projection of internal conflicts. Hmm. So all my, all my critique and, and agony and outrage at the outer world is just a metaphor for what was going on inside me and my own life. And I don't think that makes it any less, um, I don't know what the word is, uh, any less viable as lyrics about external stuff about the world about unfairness about social stuff just because it happens to parallel something that's going on uh on the inside well i think you know the more i've come to think about this like it's it's certainly like it affects so much of politics like you know the reason people act the way they do is because of mental health stuff and that's not to you know diminish people's responsibility for the things they do but like so much of our world is just motivated. Like the, the personal is political because you know, like that's where the politics comes from. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, uh, not to steer it back to a straight up music nerdy question, but you did, can steer it anywhere you want. I don't, <laughs> I'll talk about anything. I don't care. Did SAG ever play with basic radio and um, distorted truth? Uh, well, let's let's be clear. It was called SAG. We never called it SAG. Okay, sorry. I'm 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 I'm, I'm immersed in the union right now. So I am too. I'm. Are you a SAG member? No, I'm just following uh, all the labor stuff going on right now, and so I'm I'm, I'm yeah. No, I'm not. Unfortunately, um, my, none of my stuff was union worthy. I don't think that I've done. Uh, well, I'm a SAG member because um, I I did a backup vocal for Rise Against. Yeah, And so when you do a backup vocal, I guess for someone on whatever label, the capital or whatever, you get a SAG buy-in. 
Oh, wow. Basically, you get permission to buy in. So I dropped, it's a lot of fucking money. And I spent yeah. it because I thought if I ever got like just speaking extra gigs, that would, you know, be really good. Um, so anyway, I ended up getting, I haven't, I haven't gotten any speaking, speaking extra gigs, but maybe, uh, maybe some producer will hear this podcast and they'll call me up. But anyway, so I'm a SAG member. So yeah, SAG never played. So that, like that whole thing was basically SAG was the band, the bedroom band I did with Aaron comic mm-hmm. bus. And the whole thing was a total of like five get togethers. And we just would write songs and, you know, record them on the spot. Uh, and eventually we got a drummer, but like, I, you know, by the time we were even close to, to even having a real practice, I, I moved away from the Bay area. That's when I moved to Pittsburgh. But then you guys, you're on another tape comp in 91, or is that just like an old song? That Yeah, got... that was just old stuff. Aaron, okay. Aaron is like the great archivist. He has just, he's got stuff on everybody. He probably has some of your old stuff that you don't even know you made. <laughs> and he's just, you know what I mean? He's just, it's crazy the shit he has. So, or I don't know if he still does, but he always just had so much shit. And anyway, he just used an old track for, for that tape comp. I bought an amazing book of Spanish flyers off him at his bookstore one time. Um, so yeah, I can, even the stuff he's selling was, was great. Yeah. Uh, so like, did you ever see, uh, like either of those bands? Like, was that like, like basic radio? I mean, into sort of truth. Um, okay. So basically at that time, I think I told you in the last interview that me and Aaron would go around and just try and find punks, yeah. you know, that yeah. were our age because we were younger than the older Older people like Sammy from Fang were just sort of like gods to us. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, all those older people that were actually in bands. I mean, they were, I'm not saying we looked up to him that much, but it was just like a whole different level. And uh, we we didn't really we didn't really like do drugs like that. We didn't. It was just a different level. So we would go around to the suburbs and find these kids, and that's what Aaron did. He was the real um, punk go getter. He would go out and find these kids like basic need were just these fucking freaks from El Cerrito, which is a weird barren suburb. I mean, I'm sure it's much more like, you know, kind of like um, populated with weirdos now, but back then it was just really, really obscure. Yeah. And uh, he went out and found them. And, and most of these bands were barely even playing. Like a lot of the bands on the tapes never played a show and there were just, you know, things that were happening in people's garages. That's awesome. <laughs> I don't remember distorted truth. Oh yeah. Distorted truth. I forget. I don't think they ever played. They were just a bunch of El Cerrito guys who I knew all of them. And I can't remember half their names, but yeah. Well, that's, that's Dave Mello's band and, uh, and Pat Mello's band. Oh, Dave and Pat were in it. Okay. I didn't realize that. I didn't, I never put that together. And and Paul Bay, who I guess does saxophone for you guys too. And for Oh, he was in it too. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. I, 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 well, I think the first Operation Ivy show would have been in their garage too, right? Oh, yeah. That was in Dave's garage. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting confused about who Distorted Truth was. Yeah. I'm, I'm um, throwing out a lot of obscure names right now. It's definitely well, a deep dive. No, I remember all those guys. I just didn't make that connection. I thought it was this metal guy that played guitar whose name I can't remember. But anyway, yeah. So after that, your second show is with MDC, right? Opening for MDC. So we played the first show in the garage and that was successful. 
Um, you know, we played about seven songs. People liked it. I jumped around like a maniac and it worked. People liked it. Yeah. Then the second show we played Gilman with MDC, it was a small crowd, but people already knew the songs from the day before. And, uh, again, it worked. Was there like, yeah, there must've been like a lot of, uh, you know, hype around the band right into the get go. Right. Cause you were, it's all your friends. Well, sort of, but at that time it was a real, it was a relatively small scene. And so uh, hype is the wrong word. There was some word of mouth and people would come, but you know, it was, it was pretty small. And I think at that time Gilman didn't even, didn't even advertise the shows. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, we would, it took about a year before we really had a a kind of group of people who knew all all our songs and all that stuff, but people liked us from the get go. We had a lot of energy. The songs were catchy and, and, you know, it was something that, that worked. Were there like a lot of holdovers from that kind of like, uh, fuck ups like Fang, I guess Fang's still going at that point too. Like how did, how did that scene interact with what you guys were doing once the scene really kicked off? Um, well, it was kind of like a Venn diagram. So there was the people that were really on the fringes, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that were, uh, way more into like shooting up that were way more violent and um kind of just a harder scene san francisco's in those days again forgive me if i'm repeating a lot from from the last thing but you know in the early 80s san francisco was a mean cold town like it wasn't it wasn't that (laughs) that nice it was i think even in some ways more so than la it was just bleak and there was it was just like a hard town and so a lot of those people um either weren't around anymore. A lot of them were dead. A lot of them just got so into drugs. Um, and then there was, you know, basically with between the Gilman scene and the sort of older scene bands like Fang and stuff like that, there was some crossover. That's why I said it's a Venn diagram. So like the boneless ones, all those guys in the boneless ones used to hang out with the Fang guys, but they would also, uh, they were real nice guys and we played with them a bunch of times and they would play Gilman. Mm. Um, I, I don't remember what was up with Fang at that point. I think, I, I don't remember where Sammy was with the whole, you know, everything that went down with him um, or if they were banned for Gilman or what, but boneless ones attitude adjustment, I think would play Gilman. That was like some of the verbal abuse guys. So there was some crossover. And then there were some people that just thought Gilman was too, um, you know, they just thought it was way too uncool and they wouldn't, they, they didn't want to be involved with it at all. It's so weird too, because like, you know, like it's, it's, it's such a, you know, all over the map venue, you know, like everyone's played there. Um, at that point, it's weird to think of a time where it was like considered only to be associated with one scene. Yeah. It's funny. Ah, it's so weird. Yeah. The way things change and everybody's shifting ideas about things. And, and now of course it's completely different. You have these places, you have a million Gilman's, um, that make Gilman look like the wild West. So it's just, (laughs) it's a different world. Yeah, but it's it's a world that that's kind of built on this world, you know. Like, it's it's amazing how you know the Berkeley scene kind of is is what is exported as the scene in the same way L.A. and hardcore was kind of exported and became the scene worldwide. Like, I really do feel, you know, like the politics that were talked about at the Gilman, like all this stuff is now just part of popular conversation. But like, punk was followed this kind of maximum rock and roll. Gilman, Sonically, you guys, and and all the other bands and Rosas and all this sort of stuff like that. You guys 
where Gilman or where Berkeley went, so did the world. That's very interesting. I, you know, I, I've never really thought of it that way, but that's, that's interesting. And then, you know, one thing I noticed is, and I only learned about this after the fact, but after the eighties and the nineties, where there was this sort of barren wasteland of, of not great hardcore or is like the type of hardcore that was much more like post hardcore or youth group mm. hardcore, which is, I, I know a lot of people love it. It's not my favorite, but, um, you know, then in the 2000s, there was this big resurgence with like you guys and, um, you know, all the Richmond bands and all the North Carolina bands and uh, all those great labels that, you know, like the labels that put out government issue and all that stuff. Yeah. And then yeah. there was a Bay Area hardcore scene with like, um, you know, um, Look back war, crime, war crime, war um, crime. Yeah. All those bands, Nightstick Justice, Look Back and Laugh, all that shit. It's funny with war crime too. Like uh, Bryce from war crime is now like one of the most successful podcasters in the game. Holy shit. I didn't know that. That's amazing. He does that true anon podcast. Yeah. I've actually talked to him. I've ran into him in LA uh, and he told me he was doing a podcast, but I don't know that much about it. I don't know about the podcast world. What, it, what's that podcast about? They were like, I guess really early into kind of like exposing and talking about uh q like oh really yeah like super into like the beginning of this sort of thing i guess and it's kind of just like blown up as like a political podcast but i'll be talking to like you know parent friends like normal parent friends and they'll be like have you ever heard this podcast and i'm like yeah the singer from war crimes podcast and they're like i don't know what you're talking about like that's funny yeah, <laughs> but i, I just... guess he comes up on the podcast so i shouldn't pretend they don't know what i'm talking about well i um it's funny because I heard those bands and, you know, it had been so long, like 10 years, all through the 90s. There was very few like hardcore bands that played hardcore in the sense that I remembered it and cared about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and again, I don't mean to sound like a snob. I know people had their own hardcore stuff that they cherish and love, and I'm not taking anything away from it. But basically during the 90s, there's, you know, Born Against, Out Cold, a couple other bands that I kind of related to, but very few um set to explode was another one but then all of a sudden 2000 there's all these bands and it was funny like hearing war crime because i didn't even know you could make music like that anymore you know what i mean like it sounded like gangrene or something i was like oh you can still do that or that anybody would ever either get it or even want to do it again so it was it was kind of cool when that happened Hats off to work, right? I also, I didn't mean to bury the lead when you uh, shouted out fucked up there too, because that is, it's huge because I, I don't know if I've told you this, but before fucked up formed or actually like on the road trip where fucked up formed, I was not on it, but Mike and Josh from the band were, and uh, they went to Berkeley and they were staying in a house. And after you were there and they were like completely starstruck and they came back and they're like, we were at this fucking punk house and Jesse Michaels was there. Really? Was yeah. that what the band fucked up? No, it was, it was, they were just like road tripping around America. And it's where they kind of conceived the idea of doing fucked up um, yeah. at the time. I wonder which house that was. That's amazing. Yeah. When I first heard all those, uh, we're getting into a sort of, uh, we're getting into a mutual appreciation thing, but <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> but at, when I heard that, uh, you know, the seven inches, I, I like all this stuff. I like the later weirder stuff too. I like the last record, but when I first heard the seven inches, I was really blown away. And especially by your vocals, actually, I just thought it was great. 
That means so much. And I can edit this part out, but I will definitely send you, if you want, I, I'll send you fucked up stuff anytime we do stuff from now on. Like, uh, that means a lot, Jesse. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Amazing. It, it's funny, though, because, like, you know, I, I didn't think you would be into this stuff. Like, now I know, because, like, the stuff you're doing now is fucking incredible. And it's, it's like, it's like hardcore punk, you know, but at the same time, like, with Common Rider, I didn't know if you were into the hardcore stuff. Like, it was still at that point when that record came out, like, like I thought, oh, maybe he's more of the the the, the like kind of ska stuff. Like, was that was like Common Rider what you kind of wanted to do at that time, or is that like I don't know? Like I just I, like I didn't mean to put it like that. That sounds really awkward. No, no, it's good. No, it's I'm glad you brought it up because um, it feels good to sort of talk about that and what happened with that. So basically, when I was in 26, I got into recovery you know, from drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And I had a more or less spiritual outlook on life. And I had a need in my soul to kind of like explore softer, gentle, lovier <laughs> things. I don't know how else to put it. You know, I just had yeah. a need for positivity. And so Common Writer was an attempt to integrate that into music. Um, and, you know, it was influenced by a lot of things, but like, you know, just generally more chill music, you know, Buddy Holly and, and uh, I like shit like Sublime and The Strokes and all sorts of stuff like that. So that's where that came out of. And the lyrical, the kind of sweeter lyrics were also due to that stage of life where I was in the recovery. I was... I, you know, I, I didn't want to be around hard edge scenes. I didn't want to have hard feelings um, and that kind of intensity. Mm. And so that record came out of that. Now, looking back at it, I like, I would never do that now. Like, I don't, I, I don't really know how good I think it is. <laughs> like people were kind of, a lot of people were bummed when they heard that. Cause it was like, you know, it was just softer and they thought it was wimpy or whatever. Um, but the thing is, even though I think this is not, you know, taking away from being all about me, I think this is really true of art of any kind, high art, low art, which is once you've done it, the best thing to do is just think about it as being none of your business. Yeah. Because even though I don't really love, I'm sort of embarrassed by certain things on that first record, on both records, a lot of people love it like way more than op ivy you know particularly yep. people in england for some reason english kids love that fucking record so i'm glad it got made you know what i mean i'm glad i put in the hours and even though now i feel like some of it was sort of misguided it did serve a purpose and there was something that a lot of people really related to in it in it so well, it's we played all good. The, we played the shit out of it on uh, the community radio show that sandy from fucked up and i used to do at the time um Cause the guy we did the show with was madly in love with it. And I got to be honest, like at the time I, you know, I was, you know, it wasn't what I was into, but <laughs> I've, I've gone back and listened to it. And there's, you're right. Like classics of love, that song informs so many bands that fucked up is played with in England. Um, yeah. The English kids love it. Aaron Comet bus loved it, which um, was kind of nice. Cause he's hard to please, you know? And <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, so it was a nice thing to have done. Well, and now I'm more mature and I can definitely separate myself from like nostalgic attachment to things in the same sort of way, like, you know, differently. Um, and I think it's fantastic. Like your lyrics are killer on it. And it's funny to hear 
why you were doing these things, you know, and to have kind of like that perspective on your approach to making that record and hearing about the positivity and stuff, because that makes a lot of sense about, you know, what was coming out. You know, and to be honest, again, going back to sort of the topic of mental health, if I had sort of, I don't know how to put this exactly, because it's really risky trying to like reassess what you did and say, Mm -hmm. oh, if this had happened, I would have done this because who the fuck knows? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like maybe if I had had good mental health, I would have been investment bankers. I don't know. But if I, I think that if I had sort of had less depression, anxiety and stuff, I would have just made music consistent, consistently made some bad music, made some good music. You know what I mean? But because of sort of where I was at all those years, my output was a bit sporadic and, and, you know, that's not, I'm not saying that's good or bad or, but it just is what it is, but that's sort of the reason that, um, I've never been like a full-time productive kind of album a year type guy in the way that, uh, many of my friends have like Aaron, for example, Aaron comic Bus, he's probably been on 20 records, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I, I like not to diminish the mental health stuff and like what this does to your mental health every time you do one of these things, but every time you do something, it, it influences people. Right. Because I think, you know, like you're, you're a gifted songwriter and a, and a gifted vocalist, obviously in the, in the punk stuff that we're talking about and stuff like that. And so it's cool to see common writer, like, even though I didn't appreciate it at the time, like to put it in perspective as part of this sort of, you know, career that you have, it's, it, it's an amazing sort of little chapter. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's very generous. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm really grateful to the people who do like it. Yeah. Like it feels like, you know, you can't, you know, you don't predict who's going to be influenced by what you do, you know? And yeah, like, totally. You really don't, you never know what's gonna, you know, you never know what, where something's going to land. Yeah. And just like how it changes things in its wake, you know, like there's just, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting to think about like these things is almost like pieces of a puzzle and if without one of these pieces is gone like how would it change the whole picture totally yeah Um, were were there any sort of uh attempts to do other bands in between these sorts of things um big rig so i i I keep talking about mental health shit but and i don't really know i don't know am i tipping my hand too much am i oversharing i don't know but now that we're into it i'll just sort of go with it but basically i had a lot of trouble um kind of connecting with people and finding people to play with um because you know a big aspect of the depression i experienced was that it was very hard for me to be involved with scenes or to be prolifically social Mm. so like a lot of the ways that you get in bands that work is you go out you meet people you connect, you go to the bar, you meet this one, he knows this other guy, you know, stuff like that. And I just wasn't doing that. So even though I might have been in more projects, um, I wasn't for that reason. So, but, you know, given my kind of limited capacity and network, I did start a couple things, but they were all very short lived and very few of them recorded. How did it feel at the time when everything around you is kind of exploding? Like, were you getting approached by, people to put bands together, like major label type people. I mean, cause like you hear the stories about what lengths people are going to to try and sign rancid and, and obviously what's happening with green day. Like it feels like there, there must be people looking at you from these sort of like music industry side of things. Uh, I never heard from any of them if there were. 
it's fascinating because I feel like you hear about that stuff happening in so many scenes and it just feels like, you know, you're, you're the guy that was, you know, not obviously sitting out for no reason, but at the same time, like it must've been very wild to watch happen around you. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I just sort of, uh, yeah, I was kind of a fly on the wall for a lot of that stuff. I mean, green day always kind of operated in a different world than I was used to. Like I said, in a certain way, there was, um, you know, there was a kind of division between punk and, and mainstream music that is very much eroded now. Mm-hmm. Um, even punk and like college rock, what we used to call college rock, like who's do and the replacements and stuff like that. Yeah. So, so they, to me, like a lot of the stuff that was happening was kind of operating in a different world. And even the warp tour, like a lot of these bands blew up with the warp tour, you know, the fat bands and the offspring and rancid and all that. Even that was just such a different world than I was used to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Cause I was used to punk shows that happened in underground venues, maybe like something, maybe if it got a little bigger, it would go to something like the Metro or slims, but like the warp tour just seemed like a whole different universe. So in a way I felt very like, Oh, this is some weird thing that's happening out there, but it's not, I'm, I didn't, I didn't feel super connected to it. Like, Oh, I should be there. Yeah. No, I I guess it is like, it's almost like you need these sort of giant flare ups to kind of happen to populate the next wave of DIY scenes, because like that was kind of the on-ramp period for like so many kids, I guess that would populate, you know, the stuff you're talking about, like the war crimes and all this sort of, you know, and and, and all the stuff on the East coast and, and certainly my band. Yeah. And, you know, during that time, I thought the Warp Tour was just really dumb. And uh, I, I just hated the idea. I thought having two stages at once was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard <laughs> of in my life. And, but, you know, and I used to say that. And then a lot of kids said to me, well, that's where I learned, you know, that's where I cut my teeth. And that's where I learned to love this stuff. So I stopped saying that because really that, you know, that somebody <laughs> like my, uh, my class show or whatever it was that, that moved me, somebody's the warp tours is that for somebody else. So yeah, more power to them. But, but you're right. Both things can be true at the same time. Like it could suck and it could also be really important. (laughs) (laughs) Like (laughs) I would not probably be here if it wasn't for it, but at the same time, I also at a certain point was like, this is a nightmare. And well, part of, part of my thing is I just hate, and you know, don't hold me to my word if I end up playing these things someday, but (laughs) I just, I, I hate festivals. I don't like that. I kind of, and this isn't only old, it's partially old man shit, but I even felt this way when I was a kid, which is like kind of the fewer bands, the better, you know what I mean? Couple Mm -hmm. bands, good enough. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's, it becomes, uh, it comes, becomes oversaturated. Yeah, it becomes it's it's weird to go to them though. Like you know, getting a I I got to do uh, to sing a song with Rise Against. Unfortunately, did not get a SAG offer afterwards. So, oh, that's uh, weird. Were, well, I, did I didn't you get record to, it. No, unfortunately, that's the ticket. I got to get that them was, put out a live version. Mistake. I know. I'm going to push for a B side on the next record of us doing Fortunate Sunday. Yeah, well, well, just listen. Next time they're recording, just say, "Hey, I'd love to jump in." <laughs> I mean, hey guys, By I'm the way, to... I have this career. I have this thing. This is totally separate. I'm not saying this about Rise Against, but I've had this thing where people ask me to guest on their records over the years, and it's always like a punk band. They're doing one ska song, <laughs> and then. <laughs> 
like, I don't really know what to sing on this. <laughs> Maybe we should call Jesse Michaels. It's happened uh, a bunch of times. I, and that's not the case with Rise Against. It's a great song that I did with them. So yeah, don't and get I don't, it twisted. And I don't mean to uh, repeat myself if I said this last time or if I said this to you off the air, but fine with Operation Ivy, there's like two camps of people. There are the camps that are like, they're a ska band, or there's the camp that they're a punk band with ska songs. You know, and yeah. I, I find myself very much in the latter where I went back and obviously did a deep dive through everything you guys put out. And to me, there's obviously ska influence on a lot of the songs and not a lot, but like on a few of the songs. But you guys are a punk band. Like, that's the thing that really yeah, it's a punk through. band. The ska scene, the pe- ska people back then were very disdainful of us. Yeah, I could see yeah. that. I could definitely see that. Like we didn't have suits. We didn't have horns. You know what I mean? It was sloppy. It was too sloppy for ska. Yeah, and it's it's also just such a small part of the band. Like you can imagine that would just be like such a small part of your set. That yeah. Back then. Uh, Jesse, this has been amazing. And you know, anytime you want to do a part three or come back on here, you know, you're always welcome. Okay. Well, listen, Damien, you are so good at this. I really appreciate it. It's great to talk about this stuff. You uh, draw me out in a way that other people don't, even in my personal life. So I appreciate it. Thank you, Jesse, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Jesse will be back for a part three whenever he wants. Uh, also, thank you for those kind words, Jesse. I really do appreciate it. Once again, check out that Classics of Love EP available on Bandcamp right now. I don't think that thing, yeah, I'm pretty sure it never got announced for, to, that it was coming out on vinyl. So hopefully that thing gets a physical release at some point as well. And also, hopefully we see Jesse play some more live shows. I noticed Classics of Love have been playing uh, or, or played a show recently. So one of the one of the few front people I've never gotten to see perform live that's had, you know, that kind of impact on me. I've been very lucky, gotten to see most of my favorites do a song or two live over the years, but never seen Jesse. So hopefully that happens in the future. And speaking of in the future... Coming up later on this week on Turn Out a Punk, our new longest episode ever. Move over, Bill Hader. Elgin James is here from five, uh, 454 Big Block, from Wrecking Crew, from Righteous Jams, from being the head writer or the showrunner of the Mayans, from so much stuff. This is a incredibly heavy episode incredibly inspiring episode a this this thing's a trip this is a a trip of an episode i promise you that uh you will um yeah you will be left you'll leave this episode thinking that is 100 percent sure uh and i'm very excited for you to hear it all right that is it remember as always black lives matter the lives of indigenous peoples matter We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards Asian people and people of different faiths. And yeah, because these issues aren't political issues. These are human rights issues. Everyone has a right to be free. Everyone has a right to live their lives as they choose and, and, and just free from the threat of violence and hate. So, you know, go out and get involved in causes and organizations that you think are doing stuff in areas that stuff should be done. And there's a lot, there's a lot going on right now. You know, uh, it can be overwhelming. It can definitely be overwhelming. But if you, if you start, you know, 
start doing something, it it can feel uh, feel slightly more in hand and manageable. I don't know if I'm articulating this properly, but yeah, get involved. Uh, also, this podcast, as always, supports people's right to choose what they want to do with their reproductive systems. Um, and yeah, that's that's basically where it's at. Fuck Nazis. Fuck fascism. Fuck people. Just, just oh man. <laughs> Once again, it can be a little overwhelming at times. There's a lot going on in this world right now. Uh, speaking of which, it can be overwhelming. So go out there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this shit. Start a band. Start a fanzine. Start a start a podcast. Uh, you know, just just do something because. It'll make you feel a little bit better. You don't have to even put something out publicly. You can just draw a picture for yourself, you know. Uh, also, try meditating. It really helps to slow down the world, you know, and give yourself a, a second to breathe and take everything in. I didn't believe in it, and it worked for me. You know, I also didn't believe in mushrooms and weed and all that stuff. But, you know, I've, I've come to understand a little bit more. And I think, anyway, that's for another podcast. That's not for this podcast. Uh, what else do we got to do? We got to sign our organ donor cards because, you know, they don't take those organs for people that need them. They wait till you don't need them and then they take them and they can give someone else like a new lease on life. And, uh, okay. That's about it. So stay safe and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.